Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We always felt there would be a chance, um, but uh, it has been unfortunate that two people ha- have, been, have tested positive in that window. And as a result, uh, the chief health officer has determined that um, those uh, individuals that were on the plane, everyone else on that plane was a close contact. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. On today's episode, I will cover the quarantine crisis, unfortunately, happening right now in Australia. 72 players, both men and women, will be forced to isolate completely for the next 14 days due to positive tests on three separate charters from different areas all on their way to Australia, one from LAX in Los Angeles, one from Abu Dhabi, one from Doha. I will cover that, what the effects are, what the Australian government and Tennis Australia can or cannot do in response to this development. How was the communication between Tennis Australia and the players? And finally, what is happening in Adelaide? where Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, Dominic Team, Serena Williams, Naomi Osaka, and Simona Halep are quarantining separate away from the rest of the tour. Then I'll get to a new segment on Monday Match Analysis, the stat of the week powered by DB4 Tennis. And finally, some notes on actual tennis last week, Australian Open qualifying and Delray Beach. But of course, I will start with the developments in Australia. Everyone had to have proof of a negative test 72 hours or less prior to the boarding of these charter flights. There are about uh, from 17 to 19, somewhere in that range. These are charter flights from different areas in the world to Australia where players will begin what was supposed to be sort of a modified quarantine, which allotted five hours out of the day outside of the hotel room, training, eating, etc. For 72 players, what that will be is instead of that modified quarantine, it will be a full quarantine. And that's because there were positive tests on some of those flights, which the Victorian government has deemed close contacts. So everyone on the flight is now deemed a close contact with those individual positive tests. Everyone on those three flights will have to quarantine completely for 14 days. This is very, 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 very bad. For the players in isolation, they will have one week buffer before the Australian Open begins, but still going 14 weeks without doing anything. Everyone agrees is a tremendous burden on the athletes. And as Belinda Bencic said, If the players are complaining, it is not because they have to quarantine. It is because they are expected to do their jobs shortly thereafter. That's tough. It's difficult. And by the way, staying in the same room for 14 days is in itself physically and mentally extremely challenging. Nothing to sneeze at. Thankfully, 
I have not had to do it, but people close to me have. And let me tell you, I've seen firsthand. It's not easy. It's hard. So can we start here? Let's start here. Let's give the players a license to complain. The situation absolutely stinks. It is a real hardship. It doesn't matter how much money they're making. It doesn't matter how fortunate they are for this tournament to be happening. Which, by the way, I saw an unbelievable amount of gratitude by so many players. So many players came out and thanked Tennis Australia for putting this event on despite all of the difficult circumstances. And I saw so much gratitude. That doesn't mean the players can't complain. I don't care if you're an astronaut, a tennis player, or a janitor. If you have to stay in the same room for 14 days, license to complain. License. It stinks. And to have to compete after that, it stinks. I'm not going to play, I'm not going to call a player entitled for complaining. I'm not going to do that. License to complain. But now let's take it a step further. Sometimes life stinks. Sometimes circumstances can't be avoided. So let's look into this. We're talking about an area in Australia which is essentially living without the hardship of coronavirus. They've been hovering around 20 cases daily in the entire country. They have gone into lockdown. They have limited travel, both international and domestic. And the reward for their immense commitment to controlling the spread of this virus, the reward for that has been they are right now living under somewhat normal circumstances. Folks, the stakes are enormous. That can be undone very, very easily. All the work that the community has put in to control this thing, that can be undone in an instant. There are Australians who have not been able to come back to Australia because that's how strict Australia has been. That's how much it is meant to them to control this virus. And it's worked. They've done it. So for the country to welcome in about a th hundreds of tennis players from all around the world, this was always going to be a hard sell for Craig Tiley and Tennis Australia to get the government to agree to this. This was always going to be a hard sell. And now we're going to expect that there's going to be exceptions made to public health guidelines? Really? Of course not. Why would we expect that to be the case? Why would we expect that close contacts would get to test frequently enough that they can get out of quarantine when for the locals, for the people in that community, those are not the rules? And how could we expect the Victorian government to bend any further than they've already bent to allow this event to happen? These two things are not mutually exclusive. We can give the players a license to complain. We can be sympathetic for the situation that the players are in. We can, at the same time, appreciate that nothing can be done here. 
Novak Djokovic wrote to Craig Tiley and published a list of requests. He asked the tournament to reduce the days of isolation required for the players carrying out more tests that confirm that all are negative. He asked permission to visit your coach or physical trainer as long as both have passed the PCR. He asked that if the previous proposal has the green light, that both the player and his coach are on the same floor of the hotel. And Djokovic finally asked to move as many players as possible to private homes with a court to train. Look, some of those requests are perfectly reasonable. In fact, all of them are perfectly reasonable, but some of them are at odds with the public health guidelines in the state of Victoria in Australia. The quarantine is 14 days. Those are the rules. Those are the rules. That's not going to change. It doesn't matter what Novak Djokovic says. I am not going to criticize Djokovic for writing this to Craig Tiley. But it's not going to happen. He has no sway here. This is above him. This is above tennis. It simply is. I'm not going to criticize Djokovic for being out of touch or being entitled. Why? Because to do that would be like criticizing a prosecutor for, prosecu for prosecuting an innocent man. You can't do that. That's their job. Djokovic's side is the players. He speaks for the players. That's what he's going to do. I'm not going to get on him for doing that. He's a prosecutor prosecuting. He's a defense attorney defending. Novak Djokovic has a side. All he's trying to do is do what's best for his side. That's okay. But it's not going to it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Let's talk about communication. Because this is one area where I think that Tennis Australia and Craig Tiley the CEO is not above criticism at all. The general sentiment among players, and this was confirmed by Australian doubles player Philip Oswald in an interview, the general sentiment among players, and you could see it on social media, was that they were caught off guard by the idea that if someone was positive on their charter flight to Australia, that they would have to isolate for 14 days. They never saw that coming. They were surprised. And again, I'm sympathetic to that position. I would hate to be surprised by such a thing. And communication is often not good when it comes to tennis. Eh, that's being kind. Communication is usually horrible when it comes to tennis. That is a byproduct of the fractured political system is that the players are not communicated to. They are often finding things out through Twitter, through Instagram, just like fans are, which is not great. And at the end of the day, communication is in the eye of the receiver. Just like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, communication is in the eye of the receiver or in the ear of the receiver. And if the players were all naive to the idea that this was a risk, well, that's not great. And I think everyone, including Tennis Australia, would wish now that that could be different. With that being said, Craig Tiley did say that close contacts would have to quarantine. I think the players thought that meant their coaches, their inner circle. No, no, because the Victorian government ruled that anyone on the plane, and by the way, on one of those planes, it was a flight attendant. And I don't know 
if if there was anything different. But as far as I'm concerned, flight attendants are usually walking up and down the plane the whole time. So on one of those planes, the LAX plane, it was a flight attendant, but it didn't matter. Everyone in the plane, everyone in the aircraft was considered close contact. So that was said. But then another interesting wrinkle here is uh, what Artem Sitak, um Artem Sitak said. We had a call with Tennis Australia about a month ago, and um, not a lot of players were on that call, which was surprising to me. But hey, that's 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 how it was. Um, so basically, there, Tennis Australia, the organizers, they told us the risks that we're gonna be undertaking, and um, and they did mention that if somebody tests positive on the flight, uh, it's gonna be up to the health uh, authority uh, to decide whether to quarantine all the flight or just isolated compartments of the plane. The players weren't on the call. They missed it. Look, this is uh this is a gray area and I think you got to land somewhere in the middle because this should have been probably spelled out a little bit better to the players. With that being said, personally I can't imagine being that shocked that the ruling was how it was given the local guidelines in Victoria. My source of shock, my source of surprise is how many tests, again, three separate charters, tests flipped from negative to positive over the course of 72 hours. These flights were 20% full, which did ultimately mitigate the damage here. But think about it. That's not that many people. And in three, on three separate occasions, you had people on the plane whose tests in 72 hours flipped from negative to positive. That is where I was surprised. But if you would have told me that the ruling would be that everyone on the plane would have to quarantine, I can't imagine being that surprised by that. I'm a little bit flabbergasted that the players are so surprised. And I do question if this is really a big conversation at all. While I feel bad for the players who are caught off guard, would it have changed anything? At the end of the day, some players like Yulia Putnetsova has, have said that they would have considered not going to Australia had they known this was a risk. But I have to think that most players would have crossed their fingers, hoped that there were no positives on their charter. I would have been pretty confident, quite frankly, in a 72-hour time span. I got to think that most players would have gotten on that flight to Australia, and the result would have been the same. Let's talk about Adelaide real quick. You have six of the top, you know, six of the top players in the sport quarantining and uh, training in a separate location. And players like Philip Oswald, who I referenced earlier, and like Benoit Pair, who did an interview. They have said that there is resentment among the players that the folks in Adelaide, first of all, didn't have to deal with this risk that we now know existed with the flight, but also that there is a gym in the hotel and that they get five hours of, tr of tennis training, which doesn't count towards their gym training, and that they get more entourage allotment and that the conditions are unfair. Well, I talk about this on my show three with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy, which is uh, now part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. 
please do check it out. Look up three, a tennis show on YouTube or podcast platforms and you will see it. Um, definitely subscribe to that. It's also on the homepage of this YouTube channel where uh, you can find it there. If you scroll to the bottom, we spoke about this on three. If you want in-depth conversation on Adelaide and what's going on over there, make sure to check out the latest episode of three. But clearly this is the better place to be. Clearly you want to be in Adelaide. So much so that Novak felt guilty about being there. Novak almost asked to be in Melbourne. But this is another example of entertainment trumping fairness, and I've spoken about it at length when it comes to the ATP Cup, an event that is scheduled to take place next week, an event that is inherently unfair if you look at the uh, the way players qualify, if you look at which players get to participate, how many rankings points they receive, and which players don't get to participate. It's not fair. It's not a fair event. But we sacrifice entertainment for fairness. We do it all the time. The players have earned the position that they're in. Is it unfair? Yes. Will we be complaining when these players are, you know, playing exhibitions that, you know, are, are going to give us they're the best players in the world. We're going to be entertained by the tennis that is set to take place in two weeks in Adelaide. Are we going to be complaining then? I don't think we will, and I won't. Now let us get to the stat of the week powered by DB4 Tennis. Check out more tennis history at db4tennis.com. This will be a weekly segment on Monday Match Analysis. We thank our friends at DB4 Tennis. Get a little historical perspective in the show. Very, very important, and these guys are great. All right, heading into the 2021 season, we have a very interesting WTA trend since 2016. There have been two or more new major champions every single season. It's the first time in tennis history that in five consecutive years, we've had two or more first-time major champs in women's singles. It started in 2016 with Angelique Kerber winning her maiden slam at the Australian Open. Then four months later, Garbine Muguruza broke through in Paris in 2017, also at the French Open. It was Yelena Ostapenko claiming her first title. And at the U.S. Open, Sloane Sloan Stephens won on her home soil. In 2018, we witnessed the most first-time champs since 2011. It started off the year in Melbourne with Caroline Wozniacki. She, by the way, is the oldest or the most experienced first-time major champion in this stretch. She had played 43 uh, majors before winning her first one in Melbourne at the age of 27. Simona Halep followed that up at the French Open, won her first slam, and the youngster Naomi Osaka in New York over Serena Williams in that infamous final became a major champion. One year later, Roland Garros and U.S. Open both inaugurated first-time winners. It was Ashley Barty and B.B. Andreescu. And then last year, Sophia Kennan at the Australian Open, and of course, Iga Sviatuk absolutely ripping through the field at Roland Garros. The only tournament that has not had a first-time major champion in the last five years, interestingly enough, is Wimbledon. And it's most common, it's been most common at the French Open. 19 first-time major champions in the Open era. Most recently, last year, again, Iga Sriatek. 
it's interesting. It hasn't been that way for the men, of course. Um, let's see. It, you'd have to go be, before the Rafael Nadal era. Before Rafa won his first, you'd have to go back until then if my memory serves me. But of course, the experts are at DB4 Tennis. Again, check uh, check out that database. It's, uh, it's really cool, and I'm excited because uh, I think it's going to be a really fun part of the show every week going back and getting that historical perspective. Finishing up with last week's tennis, there's not that much that I'm going to go into detail on, but congratulations to Hubi Hercoc. He is the champion at Del Rey. Alex D. Menor lifted the trophy in Antalya. That tournament was not streamed, and I did not illegally stream it. You got to, um, if a tournament's going to be that inaccessible, and maybe I shouldn't be saying this because I have a YouTube channel where I talk about tennis, but if a tournament is going to make itself that, and I'm not, I don't know who's to blame here, if it's going to be that hard to watch a tournament, you better bring me something that's going to make me go out of my way to try to find an illegal stream. And Antalya did not do that for me. Although uh, Demon Orr beat David Gafan. Sasha Bublik made the final in that tournament. And Bublik, he, he's got weapons. He's exciting to watch. I don't know if he's going to make a run here at at uh, a higher level of uh, higher rankings position. Um, I don't know if he has a lot of improving to do, but he is pretty young and he's got weapons. So maybe maybe this is going to be a big year for Bublik. Who knows? Uh, but big title for Demonor. For Hercotch, that is a tournament um, that I did catch a lot of. And I can't say this this title run moved the needle for me on, on Hubie Hercotch. I'm high on Hercotch relatively. I think he's going to be in the top 30 for a very, very long time. I think he's going to win a lot. I think he's going to earn a lot of prize money over the course of his career. And I think he's going to have a great career. But is he ever going to be a top 10 player? Is he ever going to contend for the biggest titles in the sport? That's not out of the question, right? I don't, I don't hold every player to that standard. So the fact that I be, I'm even asking that question means I do think that Hercotch is worthy of that question. Right now, I'm still leaning no. That didn't move the needle for me. It's his second career title. Unfortunately, and this isn't his fault, he did not have to go through a top 100 opponent. And it's the first time that a player wins a title without beating anyone in the top 100 since John Isner in Newport a couple years back. But I wasn't overly impressed with Hercotch. He was a lot better than than anyone that he had to play. Sebi Corda was playing great tennis up until the final, and he aggravated an injury that he was carrying and ended up not playing at a very high level in that final. What do I want to see from Hercotch? He continues to have a, a really well-rounded game. Um, he's a clean ball striker. He moves well for six foot six. He's got a good combination of baseline coordination, uh, baseline agility, I'll say, and uh, or baseline comfort, baseline prowess, and surf. You know, he's got that good combination. When he gets to the net, I love his volleys. I, I, I think it's they're so underrated, and I would just beg him to come up more. And you know I'm not one of the, those guys. I think it's, it's an overused tripe in tennis to tell players who are not comfortable at the net or offensive players who aren't good at the net and you tell them to come up more. Well, they don't have it. I really think Hercotch has it because whenever I see him up there, he looks comfortable and he looks incredibly skilled at the net and he doesn't use it much. And as a result, I find his game somewhat passive. I don't think he's imposing 
for six foot six, a player with a good amount of power. He's got a flat backhand, which which cuts through the court nicely. And his forehand is is kind of big, but I think he's got a, kind of a Kevin Anderson baseline game. Um, kind of before Kevin Anderson got really, really good. And Anderson had a better serve than Hercotch. And what I mean by that is it's a little bit robotic and it's not very aggressive. And I just think he needs at six foot six with the assets he has, I think Hubie Hercotch needs to be a little bit more eager to hurt his opponent. He needs to be more imposing or the best players in the game are going to hurt him and expose his movement. I just want to see some more aggression from Hercotch in general. Still, good run. Um, he's a really good player, and he should win that title with the players he played. Um, you know, no disrespect to Kiraz, who he played in the quarterfinal, or Christian Harrison, who made an amazing run to the semifinal. No disrespect to them, but Hubie Hercotch should win those matches. He handled business. Uh, good job to, to Hercotch, and we'll keep an eye on him. Now let's take a look at the Aussie Open qualifiers. Throwing it up on the screen if you're watching on YouTube. Couple guys I want to highlight here. One, Carlos Alcaraz. Alcaraz had a tough match in the in his uh, first round, won a three setter, and then after that looked really good. And I watched the match against against Hugo Delin, and he, dominant. He he looked so good, man. Uh, Carlos Alcaraz for really the better mo the better part of the last year has looked like the big kid in the kiddie pool. It looks like the the water's kind of at his knees. And it's just time for him to get a step up in competition. And I want to see what he can do against uh, some some tour, some high level tour level players. Because I'm just I got to see it. All he's doing is winning. So first player born in what 2004, maybe 2003. I think 2003. I, I believe he's the first player born in 2003. Whatever year he was born in, first player in that year to make a main draw in a Grand Slam. Always a big accomplishment. Always a, a good indication of future success. So Alcaraz is in a main draw. That's exciting. And I'm uh, I'm just, I'm excited to see him in more uh, tour-level events in 2021, of course. Let's see. Uh, if you've noticed, Aslan Karatsev. Aslan Karatsev, who I, I was watching a little bit Last fall, I watched a, a match of his. He's really, he's a really talented ball striker, and his results are tremendous. Ever since the um, the break, ever since the the hiatus post Indian Wells, um, ever since coming back, he's been really good. I think the best players in the world will get him to move, but he's got heavy heavy ground strokes and a really big serve he, in an unbelievably aggressive game. Um, and just, he's blowing out everyone. He drew Brandon Nakashima in the first round. That's why kind of why I want to highlight him. Uh, terrible draw. Terrible draw to, to have Nakashima in the first round. Took him out in three sets and absolutely smoked his next two opponents to wind up in the main draw. The third and final guy I want to highlight is Bernard Tomic. Man, uh, he's really talented. Always has been. Everybody knows that. The extent to which Bernard Tomic has not put in effort in his tennis matches. And I actually watched him in a U.S. Open qualifying match in person um, two years ago at the at the Open. 
the extent to which he has not been trying the last five years is really spectacular. It's unbelievable. And he, he won three, three setters. So look, all I'm doing it, all I'm saying is let's see is Bert, do we have a high effort Bernard Tomic alert? Is that going to happen here? I don't know if it does watch out. We'll, uh, we'll have to find out uh, a couple veterans, Sergei Stakovsky, Vitor, uh, Troitsky, uh, Emer in there, Michael Moe in there, Maxime Cressy, the big American server in there. So, uh, some good qualifiers, loving it. And, um, the schedule is uh, next week will be quiet besides news. I'm sure there's going to be drama because it's been a soap opera so far week after ATP cup Adelaide exhibitions should be a lot of fun. Can't wait to, uh, ramp things up here on Monday match analysis. With that being said, I will wrap it up now. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe and I will see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini yeah, it's fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.